I'd like to invite you to bow your heads for a word of prayer as we begin our message today. Father in heaven, we pause to thank you for the privilege we have to worship together as believers on this Sabbath day. Bless us, Lord, as we do. We pray, Lord, you speak for your word. We pray, Lord, that you impress our hearts with where we are in our walk with you and where we need to be. Speak through me, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. The message for today is entitled, The Anatomy of Change. The Anatomy of Change. What does change look like? As I mentioned earlier in the Something is Happening time, we are here in America at the moment doing some filming for what, would we, what will be season two of Lineage. And that has taken us up the East Coast. We started in Washington, D.C. We went to Philadelphia for the Liberty Bell. Then we made our way up to Maine. And from there, we went around different places in New England to Washington, New Hampshire, William Miller's farm, and, and up to um, Ellen White's birthplace. We went as well to one small little town very picturesque in about an hour and a half north of the city of Portland. Its name was, or is, Paris Hill. Before I go into that in more detail, though, you're all familiar with this magazine that you will see here on the screen, the Adventist Review, the flagship journal of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the official journal of the Seventh-day Adventist Church that's printed and published and goes worldwide. It's something that we see regularly in churches up and down this country, around the world. It's a familiar um, sight for many of us, the words Adventist Review, and its legacy goes back over 100 years. It goes back over 100 years to the town of Paris Hill, Maine. Paris Hill, Maine, there was three Adventists, or oh, not three, not Adventists, there was three families. And their families received a tract. The tract came, this is the home today you can go, this is the home of Cyprian Stevens. Cyprian Stevens had two daughters. One of his daughters married Uriah Smith, the other daughter married J.N. Andrews. Cyprian Stevens, though, I mean, that's pretty impressive when your, your daughters marry such significant men. So he's a significant character there in Paris Hill, Maine. This is the Paris Hill Country Club. You can go there and play golf if you should so desire. Or you can go there and take a photo and remember that this was where J.N. Andrews was born and where he grew up. Pretty significant. They made a golf club out of his house. Anyway. The other family, though, of note in the town of Paris Hill was the Stowell family. And the Stowell family received a tract in the post. The tract in the post that they received was on the Sabbath. Now we'll come back to the story more a little bit later. This is the site here, just across the road from Jay and Andrew's home, of where the Adventist Review began. Today it's a worldwide journal. Today, it's probably somewhere on this grass here where there was a building where they published the first ever copy of what was then called the Adventist Review and Sabbath Herald. From such small beginnings all the way up in northerly Maine to now being this huge journal that circles the world, God has blessed his church and his people. Amen? Amen. Now, this morning, our message is entitled, The Anatomy of Change. What are some of the aspects as to what change looks like? See, sometimes growing up in church or sometimes being a young person, we have these ideas that we want to do something great. 
Now, what does that look like and what does that, that, that feel like if we want to be an agent of change or we want to change where we are, where we study or where we do? What does that look like? Well, it's important for us, I believe today, to cast our minds back into the past, see where we have come from and see some lessons that we can learn from these men and women who have gone before us. What were their lives like? What did they do? What, were, what was their experience and circumstances of their lives like to see what lessons we can learn for us today? The first point, and I mentioned it briefly last night, but the first point when we look at the Reformation and even Adventist history as well, is that none of these men or women thought or planned their life that they wanted to be a great reformer. They never set out to be an agent of change. The first principle is the principle of faithfulness. I want to be faithful in what I do. Martin Luther did not wake up and want to, you know, take on the church. That wasn't his primary motive. Martin Luther's primary motive was to be faithful. See, sometimes we get this the other way around. And we just want to change. We just want to change. And we haven't first accepted it in our life, the principle that we need to be faithful to duty, faithful to God's word, faithful to him in our relationship and every aspect of it. That's the first and most important thing today. You can go to John Wycliffe's church, as I mentioned yesterday, it still stands. It's quite an impressive place to go there and think that this is where the Bible was translated into the English language for the first time. For the first time. But Ellen White says about, about, um, about John Wycliffe on Great Controversy, page 81, she says, like after reformers, Wycliffe did not, at the opening of his work, foresee what? Where it would lead him. He had no idea. He did not set himself deliberately in opposition to Rome. You see this theme come over and over again with the reformers. They never said, I want to be in opposition to Rome. They said, I just want to be faithful. But devotion to truth could not but bring him in conflict with falsehood. The more clearly he discerned the errors of the papacy, the more earnestly he presented the what? Teachings of the Bible. He said, I just want to present what's in God's word. If that brings me in conflict with where I am, let me be faithful to God's word. In our lives today as well, as Adventists, wherever we may be, whether it's in the context of your workplace, whether it's in the context of, 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 of whatever campus or university or school you may attend, let us make God's word first in our life. That that is the principle that we live by, that we earnestly follow God's word. If that brings us in conflict with other people or entities, then so be it. But it's not our purpose to be in conflict. It's not our purpose to do that. Our purpose is to be faithful to God's word. John Huss is another man. He didn't set himself to be in conflict with the church that he was kind of part of. It just kind of happened. Martin Luther as well. As I mentioned yesterday, going up the uh, pilot staircase, these ones here. As he was making his way up Pilate's staircase, he heard the verse in his mind, the just shall live by faith. And hearing that word of God in his mind is what caused him to kind of change his life and change where he was going. He went back to Wittenberg, and as he was there as a professor in Wittenberg, he wrote a document that he never knew the impact it would have. The document was called the 95, has been known as the 95 Theses. He wrote out these doctrinal statements and he nailed them to this door. Well, it's not to this door. It's the door frame. The door would have been wooden and would have stood right there. Today, the door is brass and they've engraved the 95 theses in the door, which is quite impressive. 
But the door, obviously, the, the old door, 500 years ago, is not there. Now you have this, 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 um, this pretty cool landmark of history. But what about Luther? What about Luther? Ellen White says in Great Controversy, page 143, she says, it was not without a terrible struggle with himself that Luther decided upon a what? Final separation from the church. It was about this time that he wrote, I feel more and more every day how difficult it is today. Sorry, to lay aside the scruples which, once imbibe, which one has imbibed since childhood. So he had this wrestle in himself to lay aside what he's learned from childhood or to be faithful in his understanding of God's word. Oh, how much pain, he said, it's caused me, though I had the scriptures on my side to justify to myself that I should dare make a stand alone. He said, even though I've got the Bible with me, it still is causing me internal pain and struggle to stand on my own against the whole church. We sometimes think, you know, sometimes these guys are painted in modern history as being these, you know, just kind of rebellious characters. As being these provocative characters. As being these characters that just kind of didn't want to listen to authority. But when you read about the, the lives of these reformers, you don't find this kind of train of rebellion or anti-authoritarian or all of that kind of stuff in their lives. No, no. You find them struggling internally to stand where, with God's word because they don't really want to cause disruption. Yesterday we read the quote by Martin Luther where he says, I don't like all this publicity myself. The Holy Club. You ever heard of the Holy Club? The Holy Club came from Oxford University. It's not a name they picked for themselves. It's a name that was given to them. Kind of like a mock. The Holy Club was a campus ministry. Someone say amen. amen. The Holy Club was a campus ministry. There was a group of students at Oxford University. There was about six or seven of them. We know for sure you had John Whitfield. Actually, John Wesley wasn't an original founder. His brother, Charles Wesley, was original founder. And George Whitfield. John Wesley joined about a year later because he'd gone home to help his dad out in, in the local district up there in Lincolnshire. Now, how did you go from this small group at Oxford University of about eight students to being a Methodist church that covers pretty much the world? that today has enough money to own the Central Methodist Hall, which is only 50 yards from Westminster Abbey and 100 yards from the Houses of Parliament. I mean, that's prime real estate. There in central London. What did it start with? The Methodist Church. I mean, how did the Methodist Church start? The Holy Club was set up as a campus ministry at Oxford University. What was the purpose of it? The purpose of the Holy Club, go online and read it. The purpose of the Holy Club was to visit the sick, was for the purpose of their spiritual growth, it was for the purpose of outreach, it was for the purpose of Bible study. They would meet every day from 6 to 9 p.m. while students at Oxford University. They would visit the prisons every week. They would visit the sick every week. They would use their money as students to relieve criminals in the prison to help get them out and things like that. It was a very, very practical ministry that John, Charles, Wesley, George Whitfield, and these other men started while they were there at Oxford University. They met every day. They would fast. They would pray. And they would commit to study the Bible. 
They never called themselves Methodists. It was a local journal that wrote in one of their articles, the Oxford Methodists. And it called them Methodists because they were very methodical about the way they did things. Pray every day. Visit the sick. And John Wesley would keep an accurate record every day. He was extremely organized. They would be very methodical about what they did and very methodical about how they studied the Bible. And so they were labeled as the Methodists. Almost not, not so much as a slur, as a description. The name stuck and they just kind of said, okay, we're Methodists. And it kind of stuck. Now initially, even when John Wesley graduated from Oxford, he, he kind of would graduate and he, I think he became, um, uh, you know, working, working somewhere for the church. But what he started to do was traveling the country by horseback and raising up what was small group Bible studies in different parts of the country. He didn't graduate and say, I'm going to start a new denomination. He graduated in his mind as a Church of England, Anglican, Episcopalian, whatever you call it. That's what he was. The Church of England. And he said, okay, as well as that, I'm going to travel the country and visit the small group Bible studies and encourage people around the country to do ministry wherever they are. So he starts to do that. And he would keep record of all his small groups and all who was a member of his small groups and so on. Eventually, that mushroomed and grew over time until that network of small groups around England became the Methodist Church. As they got isolated and pushed out of the main church, they kind of started their own one. But it started from a campus ministry. Then to small group network. Then to Methodist Church. He never set out saying, I'm going to start a new denomination. He set out and said, I want to do ministry. And while I'm doing ministry wherever I am, I pray the Lord will bless me. His life was a powerful life. Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, I mean, most of George Whitfield's impact took place here in America in the First Great Awakening. But the impact of the Wesley brothers, or you could say the Methodist movement, is bigger than that. Now, historians debate this. Historians debate this. I tend to like and agree with it. It's ironic or interesting, or it's an interesting part of history, that every country, there were five major revolutions in Europe. Actually, I think I've got it wrong. There was a revolution in every country but five in about an 80-year time period. The French Revolution is the most, the most famous. But while the French were having a revolution, the English were having the Reformation. And many historians say that the, the work of John and Charles Wesley in the Methodist movement in England, which was predominantly amongst the poorer classes in the northern cities of England, where he was encouraging them to save their money, don't spend it on alcohol. He was encouraging them to dress frugally, don't, you know, da 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 da. He was encouraging them to live holy lives. They were seeking God not trying to seek a governmental change, even though they may have been underprivileged and so on. You know, the Bible says in James 4 verse 10, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and what? He will raise you up. None of these reformers set out for that. They set out to be faithful in ministry and faithful to God's word. And I pray that we would do the same. Now, there's an interesting uh, also observation of history when we look at the Reformation, and this is not as a, and the interesting observation is this, that the majority of the reformers were young people. That doesn't mean you have to be young to have a Reformation, amen? amen? But it's an interesting aspect of history to note that the majority were young people. William Tyndale, 
was voted in 2002 as the 26th most important Englishman of all time. Now, that's pretty impressive. But, you know, these kind of polls, online polls, they always favor people closer to you in time. You know, like David Beckham was number 33. Now, if you know who David Beckham is, he's not the 33rd most important Englishman of all time. He wouldn't even make the top 100. But he was voted number 33. Why? Because it's 2002. He's in the news. If we objectively looked at history, if that's even possible, William Tyndale would be way higher than 26th. He translated the Bible, the New Testament. He translated this into the English language. You know, the King James Bible that so many people die, you know, live and die on today. If, that, if this was published today, it would have been accused straight away of copyright and fraud. 80% of the New Testament was lifted directly from William Tyndale. 75% of the Old Testament was lifted directly from William Tyndale. King James just had a better PR manager. <laughs> William Tyndale, the richness of his language permeates English language today. And he did this. He translated the Bible in his 30s, 20s and 30s. Genius. Martin Luther made a trip to Rome at the age of 27. He wrote his 95 Theses at the age of 34. Nailed it to the door of Wittenberg Castle Church at the age of 34. You know, it's interesting. Not only were many of them young, but many of them, John Wesley, William Tyndale, John Wycliffe, John Huss, many of them, the majority of the leading kind of ones, were all on university campuses as well. That it was there in that context of learning and growth and, and, and seeking knowledge that the change took place. John Huss was the pastor, for our modern day term, of the Bethlehem Chapel in Prague, capital city today. I'm not sure it was a capital city back then. And his big thing was leading worship in, in, in their own language. He became the pastor of the biggest leading church in the capital city of his country at the age of 31. I don't know when the last time there was a 31-year-old pastor of the Loma Linda University Church. Or in my country, in England, we got the biggest church in, 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 in the conference. You know. But the biggest church in the conference, the pastor who's sent there always is someone who is seasoned. And many times, they're good ministers. But we just have this aversion today to sending young people to big places. 31 years old, pastor of the leading church in the city. You know, it's, and it's not because youth are inherently virtuous, amen, because they're not. And it's not because youth are inherently wise, because they're not inherently wise. Youth are inherently virtuous, wise, or even knowledgeable. But youth are often free from the constraints of tradition. Not all tradition is bad, but they're free from the constraint of not knowing something can be done, of knowing something can't be done. Often they look at something and because they don't know it can be done or can't be done, they try it anyway. You see, for those of us who are older in years, there's a thin line between mentorship and stifling. A thin line between mentoring a young person and then stifling them by this. Because I, you don't say this, 
Because I failed at doing that. Let me counsel this person that that's not possible because I want to then avoid the, um, the, you know, the challenges I faced when I tried that and it didn't work. Now, there's a thin line between mentoring and stifling. And there's also a thin line between mentoring and pride. Where because I wasn't successful in doing something, I don't want anyone else to succeed either. And part of a job of a good mentor is mentoring someone to succeed where they have failed, not just to emulate everything they have done. And for those of us or here who may be slightly older, I pray that you may mentor the young people in a way that encourages creativity and risk-taking. I don't know what it's like here in America, but in England we've got these phrases called health and safety. You ever heard of those phrases? We have another phrase called risk assessment. It's crazy. As a youth director, I want to take the youth over here to do an activity. America doesn't have so much of this because you guys are a little bit more cowboy. But, you know, I want to take the youth over here to, to the lake. I've got to do a risk assessment and write it down of all the risks that are potentially involved in taking the youth to the lake. Big like three, four, five, ten page document to legally cover me in case someone does have an accident. And I can, well, I, I did the risk assessment. And this kind of culture, now in, in England we, we do all of those things to stop people suing you. In America you just sue people anyway. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of a, we prevent it, you do it. But, but needless to be said, we live in a society today that doesn't like taking risks. Because we're either scared of being sued, or we want to prevent the possibility of being sued. And we're growing a generation today that doesn't take risks. We're growing a generation today that is risk-averse. The early reformers, the early pioneers, they were risk-takers for the gospel. They went out on a limb. The idea of, of a young person at the age of 18 going to be a missionary, oh, I don't know. Are they old enough? Are they mature enough? And the reality is today, sometimes the maturity level is just not there. And as young people, we need to raise our level of maturity and spirituality. First Timothy 4 verse 12 says, let no one despise your what? Who's the owner, son? I've heard this text quoted numerous times. At people. Almost read by young people to old people saying, don't despise me. But who's the onus on in this verse? Yeah. Let no one despise what? Your youth. Let no one despise your youth. There's a responsibility as young people today to let no one despise our youth. And the reality is, in this current generation of smartphones and social media, it's so easy for our youth to be despised and live in a way that people can despise our younger years. It's our responsibility, or your responsibility, whatever, whatever age you may th think yourself, to live in a way that our youth is not despised, that we use our youth for good rather than just not for good. The other thing, so we look at the, they never set out to be agents of change, the majority of young people. The third point I want to share with you is the foundation of change was based on the Bible and deep-rooted conviction. Now, why do I mention that? You say, well, that's a, that's a generic point. Well, maybe it is, maybe it's not. The point is this. They saw that their, their, their driving motivation came from God's word. 
as opposed to their driving motivation being a desire for change, for change's sake. We live in a world today where if something's been around too long, we've got to change it just because we've got to change it. Oh, we've got to change the church service. Why? Because I'm bored with it. Maybe you need to get over yourself. We've got to change the format of this conference we're doing because I'm bored with it myself. And we try to change things just for the sake of changing them to satisfy our own creative curiosity. The reformers, though, sought change based on a conviction of God's word, and that was what drove them, and that was what motivated them, not anything else. I read this quotation yesterday of John Wycliffe, who said, With whom think you, he finally said, are you contending? With an old man on the brink of the grave. He says, no, you're not contending with an old man on the brink of the grave. You are contending with truth, truth that is stronger than you, and truth that will overcome you. He wasn't like, I'm not just trying to change for change. saying no. He was rooted in a deep-rooted biblical conviction, which is why Ellen White says he was one of the greatest of reformers in breadth of intellect, in clearness of thought, in firmness to maintain the truth, and in boldness to defend it. He was equal by few who came after him. Martin Luther. This uh, monument to the Reformation stands in Worms. And it was near this spot where he gave his defense of his faith, and he said, unless I am convinced by Scripture... And plain reason. I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have often contradicted each other. My conscience is what? Captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. That principle of the Reformation of being true to conscience. We see birth, and we see it kind of continuing later on into Adventism, reading on. You know, great controversy says that the, the assembly stood in amazement, speechless of what they had seen and heard. Imagine, after all that he just said, they said, oh, by the way, will you still retract? He's like, no. I will retract what? I will retract nothing. John Huss was one time asked if he would retract, and he said this, Wiley, book 3, chapter 7, he says, What errors, said Huss, shall I renounce? I know myself guilty of none. I call God to witness that all that I have written and preached has been with the view of rescuing souls from sin and perdition, and therefore, most joyfully, will I confirm with my blood the truth which I have preached. He's like, what errors? Show me the errors from where? God's word. Show me the errors from God's word. And he died on this spot in 1415. William Tyndale. William Tyndale. We'll talk more about him later on this afternoon. William Tyndale went up against a direct commission, Oxford commission, that forbade the translation of the Bible. Forbade it. He comes along as a young professor in his 20s and says, you know what? I know the law of the land says we can't we can't translate the Bible. I, however, want to translate his Bible, the Bible. And he set his whole life to do that. He set his whole life to do that. The, the king did not want the Bible to be translated. And it's interesting, some of the history with the dynamics between the William Tyndale and the king and the, and the divorce and all those type of things. But uh, anyway, what drove him? What conviction drove William Tyndale? What was the principle that drove him? What biblical principle drove him? 
the idea that all men are created equal. And the Bible should be in the hands of, if all men are equal, everyone should have the, everyone should have the Bible, should have access to the Bible. His famous quote, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life here many years, I will cause a boy that drives the plow shall know more of the scriptures than you do. This was said in response to someone who said we would be better without God's laws than the Pope's. And he says, no, no. And that image, the proverbial image of the plowboy has ringed through time. But it was driven by a conviction that all men should have access to God's word. You know, when William Tyndale, he, he lived, a, a, he died an outlaw in Belgium. And when he was dying, or not, when he was prison, in prison before his death, he was offered to come home to England. There was tr people trying to you know, bring this reconciliation between him and the king. And he said, I refuse to step foot on English soil unless the king authorizes the translation of the Bible. So even though at the age of 42, isolated from his family, from his friends and everyone else, the opportunity to go home to your homeland, he says, no, I will not go home unless the king authorizes the Bible to be translated. He lived by his convictions to his death. The Oxford Masters in England, if you go there, it takes Oxford, you've got all these universities, but to me, this monument is one of the best parts of Oxford. It's round the corner from where Ridley, Latimer, and Cramner were burned to the stake in 1555 and 1556. What was the issue? You know, today the issue in our church is, you know, whatever our issue might be. And as Adventists, we think about the end of time, and we think the issue is going to be Sabbath Sunday. But what was the issue back then? What did they live and die for back then? The issue they lived and died on back then was communion. That was it, communion. Something that many of us try and avoid because we don't like to get our people touch our feet or whatever. The issue that they died about was transubstantiation. Is the bread the literal body of Christ or is the bed the symbolic body of Christ? That was the issue, symbolic or literal. And these people died, were burned at the stake because they would refuse to say that bread is Christ. They would say, no, that bread is symbolic of Christ. Some of us today will say, eh, literal, eh, big deal. Mm -mm, big deal. It is a big deal. Hugh Latimer, in one of his sermons, said, where is the Lord? He is in heaven whence he went after the resurrection. The change of communion is in the heart of the believer, not in the bread. You see, this principle of being true to conviction, we have that with uh, the story I mentioned at the beginning. Why? Why did I mention that story? Because even in the birth of the Adventist church, You've got that trueness to conviction that's a seed of the Reformation. You see, in Paris Hill, Maine, you had Marion, who was 15 years old. Her dad got the tract on the Sabbath. T.M. Preble's tract on the Sabbath. Somebody found his way to her house. The dad read the tract on the Sabbath, put it down, and neglected it. His 15-year-old daughter came along. Marion picked up the tract read it and made a decision in and of herself, regardless of her mother, her father, anyone in the town, I am going to keep the Sabbath. Amen. She then shared the track with her brother Oswald. Oswald, who was 17, I think, says, hmm, yeah, I'll keep the Sabbath too. Then Marion and Oswald then called their neighbor, who was J.N. Andrews, who was 15 years old, and said, hey, John, come here, read this, because he was respected as being intelligent. But they made their decision before he confirmed it, they weren't saying, read this and then we'll do what you say. They just said, read this because we respect you. John Andrews, at the age of 15, read the tract and said, I also will keep the Sabbath. Yeah. 
You have the three teenagers making a decision based on the conviction and the reading of God's word, and then all the parents followed them. You see, that seed of being true to conscience, true to conviction, we find that even in the birth of the Adventist church. Today, though, today, do we live in a society where there's conviction? Or do you live in a society today where people don't care? Have you ever tried to have an intelligent, conscious discussion with people today? And people just like, I don't care. Like we don't have the intellectual stomach to master topics of of issue. Just don't want to discuss. If it's something politically, maybe a country and there's a war. Hey, what do you think? Nah, I don't care. Whatever, let me just scroll. (laughs) What do you think about this issue in our church? I don't care. Let me just go like something on Instagram. We live in a world today where we are just kind of out of that. The average person touches their phone 5,000 times a day. The average person spends five hours a day on their phone. And 99% of people all reckon they spend less on their phone than they actually do. After they've done studies and put software on people, you know. And we live in a world today that's not really open for change or open for, you know, doing things consciously. We just create hashtags. Create hashtags. You ever heard the phrase slacktivism? You know? Actions performed via the internet in support of a political or social cause but regarding as quite little time or involvement. That's the world we live in today. You know, people look out the window and see someone being beaten. Oh, let me create a hashtag. <laughs> I, I, I wonder, what if, what if Rosa Parks refused to get from the front of the bus to the back of the bus today? Oh, hey, Martin, can you create a hashtag? You've got more followers on Twitter than I do. So Martin says, okay, I'll create a hashtag. Let me call up Jesse Jackson. Hey, Jesse, can you, can you retweet my tweet? No. They did real action that created real change that affected the the current state of this nation. And it's interesting. We live in the era of the internet. Go back and look at some of the hashtag campaigns three years ago, four years ago, and see if anything actually changed, apart from raising awareness. Change in this world is going to be real change that God's people will do. Amen? Amen? The preaching of the gospel will be real. It's not going to be hashtags. It's not going to be retweets. It's going to be real preaching of the gospel. Real action based on conviction that requires effort on our part, not just something that we do virtually through our phones or through our computers. The Adventist pioneers did not have that. Praise the Lord. And the fourth thing I want to mention today is all these people, regardless of their their conviction, regardless of their youth or or their, their motives, they were all people of prayer. They were men and they were women of prayer. You know, today you can go to uh, England, if you go to England, you go to John Wesley's house. And it's interesting there, you've got the, the Methodist Hall there, then you've got his house next door to it, and you've got a statue of John Wesley. And I like it there, it says, the world is my parish. He wasn't saying that arrogantly, he wasn't saying that kind of, yeah, the world is my parish. He was saying the world is my parish because he was saying that wherever I am in the world, I will minister there. The world is my parish. But if you go to his house, you can go there, that's the front, one, two, three stories, John Wesley's pulpit, and this is bedroom. 
and you can go to his bedroom and you can see that on the back of his house there's something kind of ugly. Because when he bought the house, three, four stories in London, he said, I don't have a place to pray. Now today you and I would be like, well, just pray by your sofa. He says, I don't have a place to pray. So what did he do? He built an extension to his house. His bedroom was on the second floor. So the extension has to go basement, as we would say in England, ground floor, first floor, second floor. That's a big extension to get a two-meter square room to pray in. Today, we spend money on renovating our kitchens. We spend money on retiling the bathroom. We spend money on getting a new sofa when the one we got is perfectly fine. We just don't like the color. He spent money on building a prayer room that many people have described as the engine room of Methodism. There's the room today. You can go in it. There's a Bible there. And he would go there every morning and pray there in his room. That's the back of the house. And you can see, look, it, it doesn't look aesthetically pleasing. It's just stuck on the back of the house as the room where he would pray. But John Wesley said, prayer is where the action is. And he was a man of prayer. The other reformers as well, you can get quotes on them. They were all men and women of prayer as well. These are some of the ingredients of change. It's not just us wanting to be changed for change's sake, but to be connected with God and be in tune with him wherever we may be. You know, we're living in, in serious times today. And I believe as we're living in these serious times today, we can't expect an easier ride than the people who have um, who've gone before us. The times in which we're living, it may be harder for us to be faithful to God than before. This says here, those who present the truth for this time should not expect to be received with greater favor than were the early reformers. The great controversy between Christ and sorry, between truth and error, between Christ and Satan, is to increase in intensity to the close of this world's history. You think though, what can I do? What can you do? What can we do? These men and women of the Reformation, Adventist history. They didn't hide behind an organization or a corporation and say, when that changes, I will change. They set themselves out to be agents of change. You may have read this quotation somewhere, no one ever made a monument to a committee. And if you spend your life sitting on committees, I'm sorry to let you know, that's just the truth. Loma Linda does not name their pavilions after committees. Now, whether you agree with how they name them or not, that's regardless. They name their pavilions after people. What's this one? The, the Jetton? The Mazo? But there's other names you see plastered around Loma Linda. Named after people. No one makes monuments to a committee. Those in the Reformation who made a change were individuals who made changes, not as organizations. We remember as individuals in the Reformation, these individuals who made a stand because they went so much against the grain. God doesn't call us to be part of a great movement per se and hide behind that, but to be true to ourselves in our own lives. Yes, we're part of the great Advent movement. Someone say amen. amen. We're part of a body of believers that's waiting for Jesus to return. Yes, but let's not hide behind it as passive people. Let's be actively involved individually in our lives. Amen. And wherever God sends you, Wherever God sends us, whether it's here in this locality, whether it's further afield into some mission field after you graduate or, or you move elsewhere, to let God use us as individuals. 
that we may be people of prayer, that we may not be restricted by what others have done before us and failed. That we'll be rooted and grounded in God's word. And that we're not setting out to be something great. We're setting out to be faithful to God. Ellen White says, and I read this quotation as we close, she says, there is no limit to the usefulness of how many? Of one. There is no limit to the usefulness of one. Who putting what? Self aside makes room for the working of the Holy Spirit upon his heart and lives a life wholly consecrated to God. There is no limit to the usefulness of you putting self aside and make room for the working of the Holy Spirit in your heart. I pray that we may be a church like that, but first of all, we may be individuals who epitomize that in our experience and in our lives, that we put self aside and make room for the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.